Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Cabot Cove Gazette, your favorite murder she wrote podcast in hours two. I am your co-host, TJ. I'm Bridget. And we're here to talk about a somewhat difficult episode called Powder Keg. We just need to preface this by saying that it's going to touch on some fraught issues, given that it's set in the Deep South, in Alabama specifically, um, and there is some questionable language. We're not going to repeat it in this podcast, but we will be alluding to it, because all which is to say, Bridget, would you like to give us a summary so you can we can? <laughs> no, I would not. Um, I hate this episode. Okay, so what happens in this episode is that Jessica has been at a writer's conference in Alabama with a friend who is, I guess, lives in the area, and now they're going to go decamp to his estate to hang out for a while, but their car breaks down, so they get stranded in some total backwater called Hooksville, uh, wherein he just happens to know a lady there and happens to be interested in her son, so it's so obvious that it's his son uh, from a love affair, and then that son gets arrested for murder, and the town starts a lynch mob and they're gonna try to lynch him and uh strangely in this town everyone is white except the sheriff who is black who is the only person holding this town together and trying to stave off this lynch mob there you go great episode lots of fun it is a challenging episode i have to admit there were some choices that i thought Okay. Well, I mean, first of all, setting it in the Deep South in a small town was it, and taking this particular interpretation of the Deep South was a choice. Like, I would have understood if maybe they did like a Dukes of Hazard kind of Deep South, but this is sort of like the Kill a Mockingbird Deep South. Like, if if a few episodes ago mm-hmm. was an, an allusion to the tw- Twelve Angry Men, it seems like this the intertext to some degree is to Kill a Mockingbird. To some degree, um, I mean, in To Kill a Mockingbird, we similarly have an innocent person who's been arrested for a crime and the whole town believes he's guilty and the town is threatening to lynch him, drag him out of jail, right? And so we have people have to sit in front of the jail to guard his life. Um, and he's not guilty of the crime, right? right? But it, it, so in that sense, it is the same. Um, what's really different is that To Kill a Mockingbird is all about the way that people assume guilt because Tom... Um, our suspect is Black, played by Brock Peters, who was just in Murder, She Wrote two episodes ago. Uh, however, this in this episode, all of the terrible people, our suspect, our victim, everyone else involved, the actual murderer, they're all horrible white people. And I say horrible deliberately. Um, they are. There is nothing redeemable or likable about any single character in this episode, except Jessica and the sheriff. That is correct. So... It's really, it is like sort of referencing To Kill a Mockingbird, but it's it's taken all of the important social impact of that narrative out by having them all be white, right? And then the lone person of color is the black sheriff who has to try to hold this town together, basically with his bare hands and Jessica's right. help. It seems to me, and I, I was just going to address the hardest topic first, because I think that we can get that out of the way and maybe talk about some of the other things in the episode. Because obviously, like, the show wants, or this particular episode wants to address the deeply entrenched racism endemic in the South, which obviously... Yes, it's definitely trying to. Yeah. Like, right. And racism is, I'm going to put this up front, is not, like, exclusive to the South, obviously. It is, it is baked into all aspects of American culture. North, South, East, West, doesn't matter. But it is true, historically speaking, that the South in particular has been, you know, especially vicious and vitriolic in its implementation of racism. 
and the show doesn't shy away from that and it uses some epithets not the, the the big one obviously but there are a couple that i was i mean to my 2022 ears was like oh my mm-hmm. god i cannot believe i'm hearing this yep. like I, you know at least twice where they refer to the black sheriff as a the c word which i, I just don't want to repeat it just because it's gross and i'm just like what on earth is happening right now like yeah, it and I think I think that's my problem with the episode. Teach like I understand the episode wants to engage with issues of racism and call attention to it. I think it doesn't stick the landing as the problem. Right. Um, so we have all these characters who use racial slurs. We have a whole town that doesn't really respect the sheriff uh, as the law, the voice of the law. Yet, like, how did this guy get elected? And like, where's his family? Why is he the only black person in this entire town? Um, and then we have things like. You know, once people use racial slurs, we have things like their family members saying to Jessica, my daddy's not a bad man. He just doesn't have use for a black sheriff. I was just like, I regret to inform you that your daddy is, in fact, a bad man. Thank you. Right. And that's not question. I mean, obviously, we have to sort of like. I don't regret to inform you. (laughs) And I mean, obviously, I'm not going to expect Murder, She Wrote to like always address these issues as thoughtfully or as nuancedly as we would in the 21st century. But even so, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. this felt to me like a very tone-deaf episode. And I don't usually hold shows accountable for things that they couldn't necessarily have done given their time constraints, but this is the 80s. This isn't like the, you know, the 40s. <laughs> like, this is the 1980s. And it is striking to me that, like, I probably would have respected this episode more had they just gone the killing a mock- To Kill a Mockingbird route and just made the suspect black. Mm-hmm. Because as mm-hmm. it is, when we have these racial tinged moments when there's our lunch mob which is obviously not directed at the sheriff but after the white you know person the white suspect but it feels like it's directed toward the white the black sheriff because of all the moments that we've had these racial epithets so openly used and as you said like one character being like my daddy's not a bad man like it's all there but they, they just don't want to take that extra step to make it a truly like incisive commentary so you have a sense that if the lynch mob actually did take action, because most of the episode, they're just gathering in the street in front of the jail and drinking and being wild. Um, and, but you have a sense that if they did actually take action, they would lynch the sheriff as well as the suspect. Yes, exactly. And I probably yeah. would have, I, I, I mean, it'd be traumatizing, don't get me wrong. And I, I, would, I would have had issues with that too. But it, at the very least would have felt like a more intellectually honest mm. episode, whereas this, it's just displacing what is clearly the racial animus onto the, you know, the suspect who's not really guilty. Like, yeah, well, and I think the episode doesn't think it's necessarily engaging that deeply with racism because everybody is white except the sheriff, right? So the, the tensions of whether the guy did it or not did it or who killed whom and why, uh, we're supposed to think have nothing to do with race anyway. Right. Um, and to that sense, I suppose it's good that the sheriff is the only black character because everyone else is so unlikable. I mean, they're right. they're totally unlikable. Even the guy that Jessica is supposed to be heading off to hang out with Ames Caulfield is his name. And I think Caulfield was chosen deliberately mm. as, a, as a reference to Holden Caulfield from uh, Catcher in the Rye. But he, he like lies to Jessica. He's just, he's not very friendly. He just seems like, like, why are you friends with this doof? Like, get out of this town. You have no reason to stay in this town. These people are gross. Like, you have plenty of money. Why doesn't she just call a cab and get out of town? Not to mention, and again, I don't want to like, force my 21st century sensibilities onto 20th century text, but he also slept with his student. Like, yes. Which, Let's talk about that for a second. Because uh, I, I was just like, I mean, I but believe, this is not- Teej, this is our third reference to professors and students sleeping together. 
Like, we definitely had the one in Lovers and Other Killers. Mm-hmm. I think we had one in School for Scandal. I think so. Um, so I think this is our third time that I think- we have students and professors sleeping together. Again, I wouldn't expect Murder Shrew necessarily to like to take a stand on this that we would sympathize with in the 21st century. But even so, I'm just like, God, that's gross. Like, it's... <laughs> and then to produce a child out of wet, like, the whole thing is just very, <laughs> as you say, it really reduces our level of um, sympathetic. It also made me curious, like, in the first, the first scene is them driving through some you know, rural highway and the car stalls. Um, and it's the sheriff who finds them and is like, oh, I'll help you guys. I'll get you a tow truck. And Hooksville's about a mile that way or whatever. So it seems like it's totally coincidental that the car breaks down in this place that just happens to have his ex-lover and his, who's so obviously his love child. Like we learn that way before Jessica figures it out and tells us. Right. But 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 it's like because it is the town with his former lover and his love child. You you. It's like, are we supposed to think that maybe he kind of orchestrated this in a way? Mm-hmm. You know, because like that would seem to be almost more believable than them just sort of accidentally having car trouble. Right. It just right. happens to be in this location where, you know, his mm-hmm. former lover slash graduate student is, or student, we don't know, I don't remember if it's a graduate The whole thing student. is super weird, yeah. And then his son just happens to go out that night and get in a fight with somebody who happens to get killed that night. Right. The whole thing is very curious. Yes, it is curious. What's also curious, and, you know, I alluded to this in the, in our, couple, in the last episode, like, I had to rewind it because when they, we first get to the bar, which is where... The, you know, the suspect is performing and Ed Bonner, who's the murder victim, is performing being... in front of a Confederate flag. Oh, I was like, I mean, again, so, I, 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 this I would, I, you know, I know it's, you know, it's the 80s. Like the rebel flag doesn't have quite the, it wasn't quite the incendiary object that it has become. Um, but even so, it says something and it conveys to the audience what kind of milieu that we're, yeah. that we're about to, because it means something very specific within that context. So I was like, Oh, yeah, that is a rebel flag. All right. I guess that's, I guess that's, I guess we're leaning right into this. Well, I think in defense, I think that in, in a time period different than ours, it's a very quick, easy signifier of the South visually for a set designer, right? Right. And I mean, but I was going to elaborate on that because I do want to like dwell for a few minutes on the issue of the South as a, as a locale and as, as a sort of geographic location that means something in the American popular culture imaginary. Like, I'm not going to say that the South doesn't have its, huge gaping problems in terms of racial inequity, which have become much more prominently known, particularly like right now as we speak, like Jackson, Mississippi being without water, a majority black city in the South being without water, um, you know, ongoing racial issues in gerrymandering in states like Alabama. I get all of that. But it is interesting to me, and it seems to be that the work this episode is doing, I, I'm going to call back to what I said a moment earlier about displacement, is it does sort of displace racial animus onto the South and it makes it feel as if that's, you know, we take it for granted that that is the South is where that happens. Mm-hmm. And I think that the, that that's the sort of vocabulary and the vernacular that this is very much buying into. I would take that even to a, a step farther and say that one is that it's, it's not only is it assuming that this is where that happens, it's assuming it's the only place where it happens. And then the corollary to that being, systemic racism does not exist in other places like Cabot Cove, which of course we know in the United States is not true, right? Racism is pervasive across society. Right. I live in the North, uh, which in, so we associate with not racism, but of course I live in Detroit, which has been totally plagued by right. 
you know, systemic racial issues and horrible infrastructure. So, but I think, I think that it's a, again, a quick signifier. We are in the South, therefore we expect racism. Here's your Confederate flag so you know where we are and what the culture is going to be. And we, you know, it's, and it's, it does sort of situate the small town South and by extension, like all, I think most rural areas as being like, in that geographic location is being inherently violent and unruly. Yes. And like, you know, when Jessica says to, um, you know, to trick someone else, like, I'm afraid of your town, essentially. Like, yeah, she says it feels like this place is going to explode, which is why the episode is called Powder Keg. Right. And I mean, that's another of those moments of displacement, because really what's going on is longstanding resentment over a black sheriff. Like, that's what people are really angry about. They couldn't, I really don't think that the people in this town give a shit who killed Ed Bonner. I really don't. Like, I think that, the subtext is that they care about the black sheriff that's defending this other person. Like, that's what I think is the real issue. I didn't get that, curiously. And, you, uh, like, I'm the kind of person who would assume that. Um, I got that these people are, I think, it trading, it's trading on other stereotypes of the South. Um, I, I, I got the sense that we're supposed to think that they're all, like, sort of uneducated. Right. And therefore uh, obsessed with their own little minor petty squabbles, and you know, amongst themselves. And I think that that is referenced uh, in a lot of ways by the costume design. So a mm. lot of the guys who gather in the street, the guys who are brawling at the bar and then who later gather in the street to form the lynch mob, um, they're all wearing dingy clothes. Their clothes have been, like, dirtied. Uh, and I think that is, you are distracting me. I was looking, I want to make sure I got the characters' names right. Go ahead. <laughs> oh, you're distracting me. But um, they're all wearing dirt clothes that have, like, been dirtied. Uh, so I think it's supposed to, like, we're, uh, again, like, I don't like any of these people. And I'm not supposed to, right? The episode doesn't mm. want me to. And it, like, literally, it makes them, like, visually unappealing, right? Yes. They're wearing, like, dirty, ratty clothes and drinking liquor in the middle of the street. And yep. so and sweaty. And sweaty. And, and it, so it seems like they're uneducated, unlikable, um, which, I, you know, I don't like the episode. But I will say, like, it is that's sort of unfair it's sort of trading on the the sort of worst stereotypes of the south and of rural places yeah i mean i just i guess that what i'm getting at is that the anger over matthew who's the suspect just doesn't feel authentic like it doesn't feel like they would be that upset about a white person accused of murdering another white person well yeah because it's like clan fighting that would be have far less salience in the South than a black sheriff. Like, that's what I'm saying is like, that, oh, that, okay, all of that would be put aside is, is beside the point. And I wouldn't have this opinion if the episode didn't also make such a point of bringing up the race issue again and again, but not doing anything with it. Yeah. So you see what I'm saying? It's yeah. pulling in two different directions. So like, to my mind, as a I'm not from the South, but really, I'm from West Virginia, which is marginal. But I, I understand the South maybe a little more organically than you do perhaps so i think that the issue the black the only as you rightly point out the only black person in town seems to be a much more understandable focal point for their rage than what is being given us in the diegesis mm-hmm. and in much way it reminds me of like a lot of classic hollywood cinema which would also displace anxieties onto something that it really wasn't about like like you know would mm-hmm. take a, a, a book called, it's a book called crossfire it's a movie called crossfire that's about an anti-semitic murder but it's really about the book was about homophobia but they changed it to anti-semitism so it's like that similar act of displacement that's going on here it's very strange you know when i was watching this um it occurred to me like i grew up watching 
this episode and other episodes in of 1980s television set in the South. And TJ says I had, don't have an organic understanding of the South because I've never lived there. In fact, I, I probably haven't. I don't even think I've ever visited, truthfully. I've been to Florida and Texas, but I've never been to Louisiana or Georgia or Alabama. And I think as I was watching for this episode of our podcast, it occurred to me that I think probably uh, many children might be in my position of having grown up with narratives like this. And so they sort of inculcate these stereotypes of the South in us. I was thinking through like, well, what do I think of the Deep South? And what what sort of prejudices do I have? And did they come from media like this, right? Like the sheriff is a great guy. I'm not, the sheriff's great. He's smart. He's rational. And they very cleverly, I think the episode wants to be really progressive in the sense because they very cleverly uh, put him in frame with a portrait of Abraham Lincoln behind him in many shots. And so, you know, he seems great and everybody else seems like garbage. And and so I think in a way, like if you grow up with media doing all of these things, it does sort of inculcate mm-hmm. that misunderstanding of what the South even is. Yeah, I know. I think that you're absolutely right. And the, the short answer to your question about whether, um, you know, the your understanding and you know, sort of emotional response to the South is, Yes, I think it very much comes from media like this. As opposed to say, I mean, I haven't watched Matlock enough. I would actually be interested now to watch Matlock, which takes place in Georgia. Like, so I would mm-hmm. be interested to watch it to see how it envisions the South differently, um, and the Deep South in particular. So, because I do think there's obviously, it's also not just the Deep South, it's also small town slash rural Deep South, which yeah. I think also matters. Yeah, which is really different, right, than like Atlanta or something. Exactly. We should, we've talked about themes and politics now. Can we talk a little bit about what the actual murder was? Yes, let's so we please do. think we're sort of led to believe that this guy killed another guy um, because they had a brawl at the bar and the brawl. Will you kindly stop doing that, sir? So this guy had a brawl with another guy at the bar, uh, and it turns out, like, he's dating the guy's sister. We're trying to, anyway. Yeah, and so maybe there was something about, like, he didn't want this guy dating his sister and blah, blah. But actually, what it turns out is that um, the bartender is the murderer, and he had killed his wife for cheating on him. And our murder victim helped him bury the wife's body in the woods and then started blackmailing him until he couldn't stand being blackmailed anymore. Because he was the one she was having an affair with. And the bartender killed him. And the twist, of course, is that he shot him and then he stabbed him to dig out the slug because he knew that the distinct slug would immediately identify him. So then he framed Matthew by dragging the body to the church near Matthew and, and burying the evidence in Matthew's backyard. Which, I mean, that part of it, you know, whatever the other sort of repugnance of the episode, and I think there's something seedy and almost Southern Gothic about that, really. You know, when we are this revelation that, you know, the wife is not really going to see her mother, but has instead been murdered by her husband and buried in the backyard, who is now being blackmailed by the person that she was having an affair with, who witnessed the murder. Like, it's very, like... That part of it is very seedy and, and, and lush and I, and I liked it, but it doesn't, as I was getting to, doesn't detract, or sorry, it doesn't make up for the rest of the flaws in the episode. And, um, just so we're clear, the wife's name was Jolene, which is just a, a lovely choice on the part of the writers. Oh, yes, of course. Yes. That has to have been deliberate. And our bartender slash murderer, Kelso, um, he's played by Pat McCorley, who's going to be known as Phil the bartender in Murphy Brown. And so like I feel like, you know, there's a 
there are elements of you know lightheartedness, like when JB is talking to Kelso about his gun, and she is able to identify it, and seems to like impress him because he's like you know doesn't really expect her to know what the difference between various firearms are. But she is an expert. Oh, she's an expert. She makes this offhand comment, like, I was going to kill, what did she say? Like, a uh, a Bulgarian scientist with it or something? I was going to kill a Bulgarian scientist yeah. with it. <laughs> which <laughs> sounds so, so Which bad. is, you know, lovely. That's a nice little grace note, if you'll forgive the expression. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, in an otherwise rather somber and, you know, really kind of dark episode. Um, sinister episode, really. You know, I mean, it's called Powder Keg, after all. Yeah, it's like there's not a lot of humorous moments in this. That's one of them. Yeah. Is that what you're getting? Yeah. And it also, again, just like reinforcing JB's expertise. Like, of course, she's going to know the difference between different firearms. Right. Um, there's also a moment where she demonstrates that she's also an expert at Scottish family crests, which uh, to me, that's got to be one of the – that's got to win the award for like the most ridiculous clue uh, so she's, you know, the, the town doctor sort of reveals everything about the autopsy to Jessica while the sheriff is like, shut up. But since he has, he's basically like, well, you might as well look at the rest of the file, lady. Um, so she's looking through all the evidence and she picks up a lighter and she goes, oh, the Cameron family crest. Like just like two seconds of looking at this lighter and she knows immediately that it is a family crest, that it's the Cameron family from and that it's from Scotland. Come on. And she tells the sheriff, like, oh, I had to, I know a lot about Family Crest because I did research. But, like, come on. That's a little much. Yeah, that felt a little bit too on the nose. And it's, you know, the whole point is that it's a red herring clue because then we think someone whose last name is Cameron is probably the murderer because right. this lighter was found by the body. As we're edging up on the on the end here, maybe we can talk a little bit about Ed Bonner, who's the victim, or if you know, but who is, by all accounts, a really horrible person. <laughs> like, not only does he sort of you know, bully Matthew in public, which is the supposed motivation. Like, that just supposed makes sense. You know, there is that Southern code of masculinity and all that stuff. So I guess that makes sense. But Ed Bonner just seems like a true dick. And there's a really interesting conversation that Jessica has with his father, which, you know, his father is not at first positioned as a particularly, like, good person, because he's the one that's being referred to as not fond of having a black sheriff. But, you know, speaks about how he tried to raise his son, but couldn't find the way to, like, make him not be a monster, essentially. Which is an interesting conversation to have, I think, with Jessica. I tuned out, and uh, I gotta tell you, I don't give a shit about Ed Bonner, so I don't care that he's dead, and I think his father is a horrible person, too, and so I... Of, of course, he raised a horrible son, and yeah. I mean, and I'm not, you guys, I'm not trying to be an asshole here, but, like, the episode doesn't give us much to care about with these people. I mean, it only presents these people as just, like, bad people. Right. I mean, that's why I said it's Southern Gothic, because, or at least it has allusions to Southern Gothic, because, you know, most of these characters are not particularly redeemable. Like, they're, you mm-hmm. know, it's... it's right. It's... It's playing into those uh, those tropes of the South as being like a place where old, you know, feuds and, and darkness sort of just seethes everywhere. Like it's just sort of seeped into the stones, if you will. When you say Southern Gothic, can you explain that a little bit? Because to my mind, that invokes um, something that is, yeah, like there's murder and intrigue and maybe incest and like horrible darkness. But it also seems like, um, like sort of glamorously dark in some way. And this episode just feels very gritty and angry. It just, and- yeah. I mean, but there's different kinds of Southern Gothic because, like, okay. I mean, there are, as you say, like pl- decaying plantation mansions and that kind of thing. But I think, right. but there are other sort of like grittier elements of Southern Gothic. I'm thinking of like Ozark is very much in that vein. Um, there's uh, like there is a strand of Southern Gothic that is much more focused on like 
lower class people and that this kind of like seedier element of the story. This, in my mind, what I was thinking of when I watched this was, um, this is a deep cut. People probably haven't seen this movie, but I was thinking of the 1936 movie Fury with Spencer Tracy, where he is pulled over. So it starts kind of the same way that this episode does, except instead of Ames and JB in the car, it's like his actual character. He gets like arrested um, for kidnapping, but he didn't do it. And the town gathers a lynch mob because they're so convinced he did it. Um, and so it's similarly like structured narratively, like, but the lynch mob ends up burning down the jail and he lives, but they think he's dead. Uh, so ultimately the people who participated in the lynch mob are put on trial for his murder. Um, and because he's alive, he's like, well, I'm not going to tell anyone I'm alive. I'm going to let them all hang for trying to lynch me because they killed his dog. His dog died in the fire. I mean, I would do the same thing, honestly. Yeah. Well, the reason I'm thinking of this, though, is because it has the same elements of like the sheriff knows, like in this case, uh, Sheriff Cox kind of intimates that he thinks Matt didn't do it. But if he releases Matt from jail, Matt's life will be in danger. And so actually, it's safer to keep Mm -hmm. holding him as a prisoner. Uh, And I think that's a kind of common narrative among lynching stories, right? Like you're safer in the jail. Yep. Um, And I think the idea of the lynch mob gathering and then unlike, you know, To Kill a Mockingbird, which we talked about, this is a narrative of all white people, right? Spencer Uh Tracy is our suspect. So that's what it's kind of made me think of. But I I suspect people probably haven't seen that. But if you haven't seen it, go watch it. It's from 1936. It's directed by Fritz Lang. It was his first movie after uh, emigrating to America. And it's a really great movie. Yeah, I mean, if it has Spencer Tracy in it, then it must be good. Because he's a damn fine actor. <laughs> Except for the part where his dog dies. I need to warn you about that in advance. Because yeah. that's horrifying. It'll go on the, episode, the list of Does the Dog Die? <laughs> that website. <laughs> and since I mentioned Sharon Cox, Sheriff Cox, I just have to say, he's played by an actor named Dorian Harewood, who um, in a couple of episodes ago, we mentioned the TV show Seventh Heaven. He actually played a character on Seventh Heaven, a recurring character who was a reverend. Hmm. Um and so that's, you know, what I know him from. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I watched a lot of Seventh Heaven when I was in college. I was gonna say, is this going to be a, f- f- a seven degrees of, ke- of uh, Seventh Heaven? Like, is that... Seven degrees of Seventh Heaven. Is, like, for every episode, we're going to find some <laughs> connection to Seventh Heaven. Oh, God, I hope not. Till we get back to Justin Timberlake, we will. What else do you want to say about this episode, Teach? I think that's about it. I mean, I think that it isn't the most sophisticated episode. I have my frustrations, but I... Was not bored during it. I will say that. Um, mm. uh, I found that it didn't succeed, I think, in what it set out to do. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, I think it was an interesting episode, if not necessarily the most rewarding or well put together one. I do not like this episode. And I do find it, um, I find it infuriating. And so I let myself get bored so I don't have to watch. Uh, I've never liked it, not just for this this week, this viewing for this podcast episode, but I will say um, I think it's appropriately named, and I do think that the writers do a good job of making you feel that sense of like ratcheting tension and the simmering. Something is simmering, and it's about to boil over. I think I think that that is really palpable in this episode, and so in that sense, they set out to do what they intended to do with that. Yeah, but I, I do think you. there were social issues that it's trying to engage with that it it does not. Yep, that I think that is a very very acute assessment. JP just needs to call a cab and get out of there. <laughs> yeah, just get out of town. <laughs> okay, well that's probably a good place to stop. It does seem like it. So just go home to Cabot Cove, honey. Yep, go home and, and get some go get some home fries, as it were. <laughs>
Although, you know, and get some strawberry preserves. I know that some of us on this podcast are antipathetic to the canning industry and to canning culture. But (laughs) for those of us who grew up in West Virginia and, you know, love a good jar of homemade jam, I'll be supporting that. My mom is going to email me now. Thank you, Teach. She's going to email me for being mean and remind me of that one time in like 1989 that we did make canned apples or whatever. I'm not the one who opened last podcast with, I don't have any cans making jars in my home <laughs> with a very patrician tone of voice. So I'm merely pointing out. <laughs> okay. That's a good place to stop. We'll it is see you guys next week. But for now, I'm Bridget Keys, And I'm TJ West. Thanks for listening. Our theme song is Reaching the Sky by Alexander Nakarada, used under Creative Common License. You can find us on social media. We are the Cabot Cove Gazette on Facebook and at Cove Gazette on Instagram and Twitter. <laughs>